Hi, welcome uh, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Adam Johal. I'm one of the co-founders of uh, Vancouver Institute for Social Research. Really delighted that you could join us uh, uh, here. I wanted to begin by recognizing that we're on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh uh, peoples. Uh, this uh, project is currently being organized along with Bryn McNabb right here and Alex uh, Muir uh, for several years. Uh, we started uh, this project back in uh, January 2013 with Dan Edelman, who now teaches at the University of Toronto. I was at, going to grad school, he was also in grad school at the time. But trying to create a venue where uh, the uh, theoretical community, the activist community, and the arts community had a kind of uh, place to come into conversation with each other uh, through graduate level uh, critical theory. Also, want to uh, recognize my students here who are here with the School for Contemporary Arts. I'm teaching a, a course in dialogues and art and politics, and it just happened to coincide on Monday night. So, a number of uh, the people taking that class are also uh, here as well. The theme uh, this year, or this uh, term, uh, is on catastrophe, and uh, we have a number of, of uh, speakers. And I'm going to introduce Jeff for a moment, but I'm just going to pass it to Bryn to uh, make any other. Um, so, in addition to uh, Jeff, uh, next week on March 11th, we also have Christine Kim coming to speak about the brutalist imaginary in North Korea through a minor trans-Pacific lens. And then on March 18th, we have Nermin Gogolich in conversation with Jerry Zaslav on um, transition and identity in the post-Yugoslav environment. Um, and then to conclude, we have Sasha Langford. Who's right here. Here. <laughs> Hi. Um, uh, speaking about an atmosphere of certain uncertainty, knowledge, embodiment, and ecology in thick time. And so that's the kind of scope of our semester. Yeah, and, and also just wanted to mention that we're really happy to be hosted again by the Ward Gallery, which is an artist from the center that formed in the early 80s. And this is a night that the gallery is usually closed, but uh, because of their uh, support, we're able to use it on a night that they're closed. We started other educational experiments with them in the late 90s, uh, one called Humanities 101 that's run out of uh, UBC uh, now, but they've been gracious hosts. And we're also really proud to say over the last seven years, this project, uh, through the process of the project, no money has changed hands. It's been a purely voluntary project on the part of people who have presented and people who have organized and people who have uh, come. And so really delighted to uh, introduce uh, Jeff Mann. Uh, he's a professor and uh, undergraduate programs chair of the Department of Geography at SFU. He also directs the Center for Global Political Economy. His most recent books are In the Long Run, We're All Dead, Keynesianism, Political Economy, and Revolution. It's a very thick book. It's a very serious book. Uh, but Jeff, you know, when he goes down that road, he writes big books. And more recently, Climate Leviathan, a political theory of our planetary future, co-authored with Joel, Joel Wainwright, that came out with Verso in 2018. Uh, both of them are at uh, Pulp Fiction and a number of other places in town. So please join me in uh, welcoming Jeff. Thanks a lot, Anne, and thank you all for coming. I'm, I, um, I'm, I'm really flattered. <laughs> Maybe a couple of other people. So I feel very fortunate to have you all here. Um, uh, yeah, so anyway, thank you very much. Um, so what I, I apologize for the mic. 
I guess it is important. Yeah. <laughs> so. um, uh, and the other strange thing is that, I don't know if there's an echo where you are, but there's a really weird echo where I am. So I feel like I'm in the audience too. So if I start disagreeing with myself, you'll know. You'll know why. So the title of my talk is Permanent Emergency. Some of you may have seen that on the, on the advertisement. Um, but, but I wanted to open it with a, a kind of invitation to you all, I guess I should say, by noting that uh, a lot of what I have to say today is, is, is quite provisional. Um, some of the questions I've been trying to figure out how to think about for, you know, their versions of, of questions that have obsessed me for two decades. But others of, them, others of these questions are far newer to me, and I'm still trying to figure out how to even think about them. And some of them you'll discover, I'm still trying to discover if there's anything more there than intuition, which is, funnily enough, where I, maybe you are similar, but often where I begin um, what I'm trying to to, to think about and so right now I feel like I'm circling questions as much as anything else trying to figure out where to land and I'm hoping that you'll be able to help me uh, figure out where to land if or maybe you just <laughs> to fly off and not come back come down um, so uh, I, I am gonna read uh, a little bit I apologize for that um, now I realize that not everyone will feel that permanent emergency is an accurate way to describe the present moment um, it seems to me though that there is something uh, distinctive about the present concatenation of political instability and economic crisis in both its slow burn and kind of volcanic varieties, um, both locked obviously in a kind of morbid dance-a-thon with uh, what we might call catastrophic or potentially catastrophic climate change. Um, now the distinctiveness I think uh, among many uh, of the moment lies in the fact that at least right now there is absolutely no reason to think that climate change in particular is avoidable let alone reversible to state the obvious. So, which means that even if we were willing to suspend disbelief and imagine the political economic troubles of right now as being surmountable on something like a timeline we could call temporary, which would be a fantasy in my opinion, but even if we suspend disbelief and imagine that, I would suggest that the unfolding effects of climate change are reason to expect that the conditions we've tried to capture under the term crisis are no longer capturable by that term. Um, so, whether or not the, the phrase permanent emergency is empirically accurate, I, I think that the effects of its sensibility are really significant. And I think that in particular, if I can use the term permanent emergency, it catches our attention at least partly because it is, or at least common sense, common sense suggests it is, uh, an oxymoron. The whole point, I would say, of an idea of an emergency is that a situation or a conjuncture that stands out in a crowd of non-emergencies, that's why we can call it one. Um, an emergency is a moment or situation, you might say, that cannot go unaddressed. It is one of a family of closely related nouns that have become indispensable, I would say, to modern political thought. <clears throat> emergency, crisis, exception, we could go on. Each of them carry within their meanings an unspoken but irreducible opposition to the status quo, business usual, normal, that kind of thing, whatever we want to call it. Now, in fact, as you may know, and I'm not going to talk about Carl Schmitt hardly at all this talk, despite the fact that the title made it sound a bit like it, but as you may know, the word that Carl Schmitt used in his influential uh, formulation of sovereignty, which is sovereign, uh, is, so one of the weird things about it is that in the original, there's no he. Like, I don't, you may know this, but, but the, the term, the, the first word, the first line in political theology is translated as sovereign is he who decides on the emergency. But in the original, there's no he. It's sovereign is who decides on the emergency. 
which is, an, I think, you know, an interesting thing to, to flag, if nothing else. But nonetheless, the term used for emergency is actually readily trans translated elsewhere in his work as state of emergency, unacceptable conditions. There's whole other ways of translating it. It's not necessarily clearly an exception. And this family of concepts, crisis, emergency, uh, uh, exception, only makes sense, I, as I said, insofar as its members conjure up an ordinary against which its extraordinariness is notable. The very thought that an emergency could be permanent unmoors the concept, and I would suggest even for someone like Schmidt. Now, what I want to suggest is that this conceptual problem is not merely academic in the way that word gets used pejoratively about constitutional semantics or phrasing, um, but the challenge, and the challenge is not, I would say, that we need a better term for emergency or crisis so we, we can know one when we see one, like, aha, there it is. Instead, the plausibility of something like a permanent emergency is profoundly significant, I think, politically, especially but not only for the mainstream liberal democratic institutions through which much of contemporary political power is organized, maintained, and legitimated. This family of concepts, again, crisis, emergency, blah, 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 um, is also central, I would say, to the ways in which a lot of social science, both orthodox and critical, tries to make sense of the world. And the most obvious example is the sort of Marxian obsession with crisis theory. Now, I suggest that we think of this pairing, I'm going to suggest, and kind of this is going to run through the whole talk, or at least that's my hope it will. Um, I suggest that we think of this pairing of ordinary and extraordinary, exception and norm, crisis and stability, emergency and non-emergency, this pairing as a reality management system, as one that we use all the time, a kind of ontological or reality management system. And I think it's fair to say that this system is closely linked to modern liberalism. And in fact, as a student of Keynesianism, and as Anne mentioned, I, I wrote a really fat book on Keynesianism that, that like basically my friends have read, which I really appreciate. Mark is in the audience, and I know he read the whole thing. That makes him and my mum the people who have. Uh, it, but as a student of Keynesianism, perhaps the most sophisticated, I would say, variety of, of, of what we might call cri uh, critical liberalism, I would say that this, moment, this mode of reality management, categorizing things into normal and abnormal, crisis and non-crisis, um, has been and indeed is inseparable from the ways that questions of political economy, political theory, and indeed the practice of government are constructed in the global north right now. And so in that sense, we might see Schmidt as an advocate of an almost pre-modern absolutist uh, absolutism who nevertheless couldn't help thinking on these kind of very modern liberal terms, a liberalism he despised, as you may know. He celebrated the exception or emergency as, I'm quoting him here, that which cannot be subsumed in the homogenous medium of the norm because there is no norm applicable to chaos. I love that phrase. But, uh, he, and he sneered at the naive liberal desire for a world without emergencies. But even he, I would say, couldn't imagine a permanent emergency. And in fact, uh, the, the notion of sovereignty that he, that he frames is, is explicitly oriented toward the maintenance of the norm. So to restate the problem, one might say that a significant part of our conceptual, institutional, and even affective apparatuses are structured by the pairings of stability and emergency, norm and crisis, rule and exception. But if one can't escape the latter for the former, then these apparatuses become less and less adequate. If we have an emergency without a norm to which we can return, then the pairing, the reality management system, starts to lose its grip. And I think we can find evidence of this inadequacy uh, immediately at hand. For example, I don't think we have a good sense of what a condition of permanent emergency might mean for the progressivist faith that animates much of, progress, much of uh, radical politics and radical critique. I think the idea of a permanent emergency poses, uh, or, or sorry, 
it would pose or, or could pose enormous problems for the pedagogy and politics that are founded on the potential for massive social transformation in the relations among humans and between humans and our non-human fellows. Of course, transformation of that kind, this radical transformation that is so important to the imaginary of, of left politics, I would say. Of course, you, you might say, and I, you're right, I would, I would think that that kind, of, that kind of transformation doesn't have to be guaranteed. Of course, we, we can't know. It only has to be the only thing it has to do to provide a foundation for progress is to be possible. And possible, we might say, could never be determined after the fact. Like, to, to say something is possible is always to anticipate something. It's an expectational, uh, uh, reasoned expectation of the future, one might say. But if better futures, which in this case I would say must mean more secure, just, free, and joyful lives for all, and not just what Domenico Lacerda called the community of the free, in other words, the, the the winners in, in, uh, of the Western liberalism. Um, if better futures are no longer deemed possible or uh, out of reach, regardless of the objective accuracy of that assessment, then the possibility of radical change is really uh, in question. Now the breakdown, if I'm right, of this reality management system loosens the stitching of historical expectation that provides much of radical analysis, pedagogy, and politics with its safety net. Its expectational basis is most visible, of course, in those orthodox Marxisms that are founded on the wager that somehow struggle will eventually redeem us. But a similar fidelity to a redemptive future, I would say, is central to many non-Marxist or quasi-Marxists occasionally, feminist, decolonial, anti-racist, and other radical orientations, whether or not they are tied to Marxism. And you know, one might point to something as, as not straightforward, but as famous as Martin Luther King's statement to the people of Montgomery in spring 65, where he says, as you all probably could quote by heart, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. There is a faith there. There is a, there's a redemption that is promised if, however, deferred. But what if it's not? What if it doesn't? Of course, I'm saying, I think, what are on a lot of people's minds, but I could be wrong. The perceived unraveling of the spatio-temporal safety net disrupts the hopefulness of possible future times and places, and simultaneously, uh, while simultaneously suggesting that what is to come, since it represents some decline or reversal, cannot actually potentially contain uh, radically progressive realization of history. And I think that this is part of why we see increasingly widespread fears on the left and the right of a sort of descent into Hobbesian state of nature. So uh, if you read books like uh, Christian Parenti's Tropic of Chaos, this is a committed leftist for his entire life, and, a, and a, I would say a brilliant thinker. But his anticipation is that the state is our last hope, and we are headed toward what, what effectively would be, like, no, there's no exaggeration to say, a sort of Hobbesian uh, nightmare of anarchy. And I think that's quite common on the left and the right. In fact, I think um, we might even say that adaptation is, is replacing progress as the telos of the modern era. And that's a troubling notion. Um, now, I would suggest that we, I would also suggest that we might call what we might call the effective shadow uh, of reckoning with the possibility of permanent emergency is the sense that for many, and again, I don't want to speak for anyone else but myself, but certainly I feel this, that our moment has to some extent revealed its tragic plot. History is revealing its tragic plot in our time. And I, I think it's worth actually thinking about this a little bit. What is the relation, I, what's between crisis, which seems to fit very well in what I'm calling our reality management system, um, and tragedy. Now, simplistically, you might say tragedy is a crisis that's past some point in no return. If there's a permanent state or emergency or a permanent state of crisis, then uh, these words lose their meaning uh, uh, insofar as they're permanent. 
Is tragedy perhaps their ultimate end? I'm not sure, actually. But tragedy does seem to capture, for me, something of what I'm trying to get at around this, the transubstantiation involved in overcoming the untenable contradictions of something like a so-called permanent emergency. Now, in the process of trying to put together this talk and think about this stuff, which is, as you can see, very provisional, one of the things I went and did is I read a whole bunch on tragedy, which was both fascinating, uh, I learned a ton, but also it took me down some very strange rabbit holes, like reading about like Periclean Athens and things like this that I actually hardly know anything about. But one of the things that I've learned is that one of the features of tragedy that almost all commentators mention, regardless of their like, level of interest, is that tragedy is often framed as a so-called spectatorial experience. There's a kind of Al of Minerva dynamic built into the idea. We witness tragedies, and part of our understanding of them as tragic comes from the fact that we only do so after it's too, too late. Now, much has been said in all the stuff I've read over the years about why this might be so. The political, what political work does tragedy as a mode of implotment or narrating history do? And some of you may have read the fantastic book by David Scott about C.L.R. James called Conscripts of Modernity, where he takes this problem and 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 uses it to look very closely at James's understanding of the possibility of, uh, of uh, radical politics in the colonies. Um, and he, he argues, actually, that James's take uh, between 1930s and 1960s changed from one of significant hope in what colonialism, in what the anti-colonial movement might achieve, to one of a much more tragic perspective by the 60s when he added a, an afterword to the Black Jacobins. It's a, a wonderful book, um, David Scott. If you want the reference, I can give it to give you afterwards if you're not already familiar. Um, anyway, the standard argument, at least uh, regarding classical Greek tragedy, which flourished at it turns out exactly the same time as Athenian democracy, is that these two, democracy and tragedy, are closely related. By demonstrating the humanity of even the greatest heroes, tragic drama helped reinforce equality and, sh and a shared sense of exposure to the twists of fate. And by allowing, by showing how disorder always lay just beneath the surface of order, and encourage commitment to a collective effort to keep that disorder at bay. This is the, the, this one of the more common takes I read. This is not really, of course, an argument that democracy itself is tragic, but rather that democracy needs tragedy, something to remind us that history is not ours to make as we choose. This is, why one, of, this is one of the reasons why it is occasionally said that tragedy today is dead, or that it is no longer possible to write tragedy, because we no longer understand ourselves as subject to the twists of fate in this way. Whether or not that's true, of course, is a different question. Um, according to this view, moderns, moderns like us, have no experience of the irrationality of the world, to use Weber's words. We understand ourselves to live in a world subject to reason. We make history, and we, as individuals, are rational, responsible agents whose lives are a product of our choices in a conditions of bounded constraint, we might say. Now, in a fascinating essay called The Disposability of History, the conservative intellectual historian Reinhard Koselek um, actually tries to take part of this on. He argues that there is a distinctly modern concept of history at work, what he calls a collective singular without a reference to an associated subject. So we can talk about something that is history in this manner. Now, only, he says, only in the modern era has history, quote, appeared to be at the disposition of humanity, that is, conceived as makeable. The idea of history, he says, could not have, this idea of history could not have been formulated before Napoleon or in any case before the French Revolution. Again, I'm quoting. Now, it seems to me that he's on to something here. I, I, I think, 
I think the, this, this idea of the disposability of history in, this, in, in the sense of we dispose of history as we choose um, clearly is a universalizing claim, but I think there's an urge beneath it that's worth taking seriously. And I think it's, it's fair to say that we can see it at work in some of the great political projects in the, in the, in the global north, especially from the late 18th century to the late 20th century, things like uh, the Bolshevik Revolution and also its failures, of course. Um, but it seems to me also that if, if so, if we can see it at work, that notion of history is currently disintegrating, even in the liberal core, which has always been arguably its main home. Because of a whole series of material and political developments over the last decades, and I would again put climate change right at the heart of this, I'd argue that there's a widespread sense, especially among those who have enjoyed the power and privilege that recent history has distributed very unevenly, especially among those folks, um, in which I, of course, am, to which I am, of course, uh, closely linked. Um, there's a widespread sense that this, that this possibility of the makeability of history is collapsing, is disintegrating, and that we are losing control of history, that it's now unmakeable or not so nearly close to our disposition as we might previously, we, meaning the privileged global north, might, might previously have chosen. And I think it's possible that this actually maybe signals part of the end, or the beginning of the end, of modernity triumphant in this sense. Of course, on many counts, that would not be a bad thing. Millions of people all over the planet have had, never had the power and arrogance to convince themselves that they could make history, and those who have have wrought terrible destruction quite often. This is a point to which I'll return. But it is nonetheless the case that the makeability of history has been and remains a key tenet of many emancipatory political movements too. Now speaking only for myself, again, I should say that probably before every sentence, speaking only for myself, I would say that my own cynicism concerning eschatology in any form increasingly takes the form of a generalized distrust of po positive political programs in general, including positive utopias, whether they come from the left as well. I think history teaches us to be extremely wary of any claims to have envisioned a future and figured out how to get there. I also think that every day we are furnished with more and more evidence that the current political ecology of the world is so radically outside the contemporary horizon of experience and expectation that it's hard to imagine a projected disposition of history, a utopian urge, we might say, that does not involve both arrogance and almost uh, a remarkable willful ignorance. Again, two things that have characterized the hegemony of the West uh, for a very long time. On the other hand, of course, to turn the critique on myself, my distrust of utopianisms and my sense that they will likely end in disaster is a definitively modern perspective. And in fact, it's a hallmark of 20th century liberalism too, which has emphasized liberalism has always, often in very explicit terms, the irreducibly tragic quality of politics and the naivety of utopianisms. So there's another way in which I'm embracing what is very much a tradition that I would like to shake off. And in this way, my radical credentials are seriously compromised, as several people have mentioned to me when I've told them this. <laughs> but at any rate, it would be dishonest not to acknowledge the immediate links here, uh, especially between uh, this tragic sensibility, you might say, and liberalism itself. And in a banal sense, the quality of liberalism, this quality of this tragic quality of liberalism is built into it in the very idea of a trade-off, which I would suggest is liberalism's version of the dialectic. It can't deal with the dialectic, but it likes trade-offs. And in fact, I would even say that if liberalism had a periodic table, trade-off would be like a key element, like right at the base of the, of the periodic table, trade-off the or whatever. Um, 
And it would be a tragic element insofar as it communicates one of the first principles of liberalism, which is that the world is imperfectible and it has a tendency toward disorder. So this ideology of the trade-off posits that every identifiable unit in the social world, from the wage to the household division of labor, is in fact the outcome of a trade-off, some more or less consciously engendered than others. And I use the term gender <coughs> advisedly there. Inflation, we can see it all around us. Inflation versus unemployment, jobs versus environment, security versus freedom, family versus work. Our world is framed by trade-offs that are considered to be zero-sum. And this is the ontology, I would say, of liberalism. And that is a tragic fact, according to liberal political theory. But as important as this conception of tragedy is to our current moment, it is actually, I think, to a more compelling analysis of the tragedy of politics that, that I might be, again, reluctantly tied. One that we find at the heart of all, that some find, sorry, at the heart of all politics, not just liberal politics, especially since the late 19th century. And in the words of Etienne Balibar, a French political theory guy that some of you have probably read and, and, and many of you may know much better than me, but in his words, uh, the tra he discusses the tragic dimension of politics and he says that the tragedy lies in the disproportionate, disproportionality of power inherent in it. In other words, the inequality, unevenness, and ultimately violence from which pol politics is inseparable. This is what he suggests. And he draws this from a reading, actually, of Max Weber, who makes it very clear in a series of papers, but the most famous one that some of you probably had to read in undergrad, and you definitely, almost certainly, haven't gone back to it unless you've been forced to since, called Politics as Vocation, which is like, there's some great parts, but it is really mind-numbing. And, and uh, at any rate, it is a very famous paper by Weber that he gave in 1919 at the end of the war, speaking to actually a, a room full of army officers. Um, and there, Weber makes the case that the tragedy of politics is the inescapability of violence. It's very straightforward. Any attempt to avoid this terrible truth, he says, quote, stems from a most wretched, <laughs> stems from a most wretched and superficial lack of concern for the meaning of human action. A blasé attitude that knows nothing of the tragedy in which all action but quite particularly political action, is in truth enmeshed. And then he goes on to say, anyone who gets involved in politics, which is to say with the means of power and violence, so those two become equated, is making a pact with diabolical powers. And it does not hold true of their actions that only good can come of good and evil from evil, but rather the opposite is often the case. This is the tragic dimension. Anyone who fails to see this is indeed a child in political matters. Anyone who makes a pact with the means of violence for whatever reason, and every politician must, is at the mercy of these specific consequences. This applies particularly to those fighting for a belief, whether religious or revolutionary. And so we can place Weber, of course, in this moment. This is 1919. He's denouncing Rosa Luxemburg, who he can't, like, he, he seems to have developed a visceral hatred of and for reasons that are unclear even to his biographer. Um, but he's looking at the Spartacist League, he's watching the German KPD uh, struggle against, uh, st struggle within itself around the position it took on the war. As you may know, the, the Social Democratic Party in Germany uh, acquiesced to the government in 1914 and agreed to uh, a policy of civil peace during the during the, the First World War in, in Germany. In other words, in her eye, in Luxembourg's eyes, giving up its advantage and its uh, revolutionary commitments to the proletariat who would be dying on the fields of battle. Um, and uh, she died 
remaining enraged about that, but, but Weber, of course, thought it was the right thing to do. Um, so we can, we can place this speech in its moment in time, but nonetheless, he is making these universalizing claims about the equivalence of, po of, of politics and violence, which I don't mean to endorse, but I do mean to say that this shadow of association it nonetheless colors how politics is engaged in, in the global north especially. Now, Weber would have us believe that the diabolical embrace of political actions necessarily violent grounds is the deal that modernity has to make with itself. And it must make that deal in the realm of politics, which for him, unsurprisingly, of course, means on the realm of sovereignty and the state. So it brings us back a little bit to the kind of Schmidt talk. Now, many of you, I bet, could, could quote from memory some version of his famous definition of the state, which also comes from this same politics of vocation paper. And I'll read it to you here if you can't quote it from memory, but I bet you you've heard this 100 times. Weber says, violence is the means specific to the state. Nowadays, we have to say that a state is that human community which successfully lays claim to the monopoly of the legitimate physical violence within a certain territory. That's the most, like everybody who ever takes an undergraduate course with me can say that like mind-numbingly at the end of every class. Monopoly on physical violence within a given territory. And as a geographer, we always have to add that within a given territory <coughs> thing because it's like our thing, you know, territory. It's like, oh yeah, we'll talk about all the stuff you guys talk about, but then we add space. <laughs> so anyway. Now, so that's Weber's, again, equating politics and violence, or linking them inextricably. And on these grounds, he says, politics itself is a tragedy, and the state is a tragic human community. Almost half a century later, Hannah Arendt, uh, whose last name I always worry I mispronounce, <coughs> um, echoed this analysis in its general form. She too emphasized that violence is what she called a means. It is purely by nature instrumental. Justifiable only, violence becomes justifiable only by the ends it pursues. And she too seems to identify, sorry, she too seems to identify the violence that underwrites the state in politics as a kind of inescapable tragedy. Although for her, it functions more like a, a sort of tragic political variation on, on what gets called primitive accumulation. In other words, it's sort of an originary moment. Just as Marx, or again, I, if we return to Rosa Luxemburg, better, I think we, better, we go better with her thought, um, partly because she was so brilliant. Um, just as Marx, uh, or better, Rosa Luxemburg, identified <coughs> the ongoing expropriation of the many by the few as the origin of capital. So for, most of you are probably familiar with this, but as you may know, Marx has this theory of primitive accumulation, which uh, rightly has been critiqued, most notably probably by Glenn Coulthard, who's, who lives here in Vancouver, uh, and some of you may know, as uh, M M Marx seems to tell the story of primitive accumulation as if it were an originary moment that is now past, that we're no longer doing this expropriation, this, di this accumulation by dispossession. Glenn and many others have made the point that clearly this is continually ongoing, um, and this colonial moment is a process, not a past. But nonetheless, if we take this framing and, and, think of th and think of Marx's primitive accumulation as this moment, for Arendt, the political, the political origins of sovereignty have a very similar shape. She says that all rulership has its origin and its most legitimate source in man's, I apologize there, in man's wish to emancipate himself from life's necessity. And, me uh, and men achieved such liberation by means of violence, by forcing others to bear the burden of life for them. Now, as I mentioned, of course, people like Glenn and Audra Simpson have reminded us that this process is hardly passed by any means. But I want to suggest that what if we imagined Luxembourg had said, and I'm twisting Arendt's quote here, all capital has its original and most legitimate source in the wish to emancipate oneself from licensity, 
and some achieve such liberation by means of violence, by forcing others to bear the burden of life for them. So instead of saying all rulership, as Arendt said, we say all capital, then we can see, actually, I think that it doesn't seem that far-fetched. In this case, Luxembourg and Arendt are very close. And even the question of legitimacy here is not out of place. For Arendt is not saying that the violence through which emancipation was achieved is legitimate. Actually, what she's saying is that the wish to emancipate oneself from life's necessity is entirely legitimate. And Luxembourg could hardly disagree because that was the basis of her whole politics. She only hoped that we would be able to bear that burden together, of course, and not force it on some. Now, the key difference, rather, in this tragic plot line that Arendt gives human history, a tragedy that is that uh, and not only is this the fact that Luxembourg refuses this tragedy categorically, despite the terrible times in which she lived and which took her life. And as many of you know, she was murdered almost exactly 100 years ago. Uh, it was January 15th, uh, 1919. Um, now, Arendt, like Weber, understood the violence as ultimately inescapable. So for her, politics and violence are not the same, but they are inextricable. It is, as she said, the tragedy of human freedom. And here I'm quoting her the old and terrible truth that only violence and rule over others could make some men free. Now Luxembourg's, again, di undying conviction was that it could be otherwise, that collective emancipation from life's necessity shall mean that no segment of humanity has to bear the burden of others' freedom, or at the very least that we will all bear each other's burdens together. Here, I think, actually, we can start to see some of the landscape that the shadow cast by permanent emergency might obscure. If a tragic sensibility is tempting and even perhaps logical at this moment, we can also see that in Arendt's terrible truth, or Weber's diabolical pact, that, there, that a tragic sensibility has been a big part of how liberalism has actually managed the tragedies that it's wrought. Because liberalism tells us in this, in this vision of the trade-off, in the imperfectibility of the world, that some always have to lose, that because uh, some always lose because some always have to lose. Good intent cannot promise, evil, cannot promise no evil consequence. It is not just that there, that there is, as again, what Lesurda called the community of the free that has constructed its freedom on the unfreedom of others. It is that this reality management system that takes the trade-off as essential, natural, and inevitable is taken not as a function of human nature, but actually as just like a quality of human history itself. Which is to say that the tragedy of politics at the heart of liberal thinking is not merely the disproportionality of power inherent in it as Balibar said. It's not just that, but it's actually more fundamental. It's that the world is by its very nature requiring violence, that violence is an essential part of the world. It is a world of scarcity in which someone must bear the burden of life's necessity. And since no one would ever willingly bear that burden, violence that grounds politics is inevitable on this account. The tragedy is that necessity demands violence, and this is a function of history. I would say this is ultimately the liberal tragedy. So if we return to the question of permanent emergency at this point, as much as possible out from under its tragic shadow, I want to suggest that the emergency, the crisis, the exception, etc., is in fact nothing other than the specter of this necessity, necessity and violence. Necessity is, again, by definition, what cannot go unaddressed to return to this question of the emergency. Permanent emergency is a condition of permanent necessity and hence of permanent violence on this account. Violence we might define, and here I'm going to offer my own definition of violence for the, these purposes. Violence we might define as the unrefusable distribution of life's burdens. So in other words, the distribution of life's burdens to people who cannot refuse it. That this violence is tragic is ironically liberalism's redemption because that violence is inevitable. Moreover, 
This points to a formulation of contemporary sovereignty, I think, rulership, that goes against Schmidt's influential characterization of sovereignty as inaugurated in the decision on the exception. If we are in a permanent state of emergency, as Benjamin himself, Walter Benjamin, wrote in 1940, just before he died, then as I said earlier, the exception loses its critical grip. If the exception is the rule, then what does the sovereign decide? Necessity points to a conception of sovereignty able, I think, to help us grapple much better with crucial features of modern life. For example, even the Financial Times, which as you may know is, is like now like the flagship lefty newspaper <laughs> in some cases. Um, for example, even the Financial Times is now acknowledging that the problems associated with climate change and inequality are not exceptional at all, but so unexceptional as to be paradigmatic of the current conjuncture. For the state, today, the problem is not the decisive act in the de declaration of the state of exception, that we cannot, accept, we cannot ex expect that uh, state of exception to end. Instead, the present emergency demands daily, almost mundane answers to the question of the distribution of life's burdens. As the management of permanent emergency becomes more central in this sense to sovereignty or state function, the exception proves, I would argue, an increasingly inadequate conceptual tool. So, we have to remember that what remained or remains, and I should, I wanna actually just step aside here for a second to remind myself as much as anyone else, that we have to remember, of course, that what remained or remains an exception was and is for many uh, an index of privilege. In other words, if I experience these disasters as an exception, it is because I am on the, the fortunate end of history for, for nothing I have done myself. Um, uh, I'm a wealthy white male in the most privileged part of the world. So if I understand these disasters as exceptions, it's partly an index of my privilege itself. And in fact, this is why I think Benjamin was getting at when he wrote, again in the same piece in 1940, that the tradition of the oppressed teaches us that the state of emergency in which we live is not the exception, but the rule. The problem, he says, then, is to attain a conception of history that accords with this insight. And many people and peoples have existed, obviously, in what we might call a state of emergency for 500 years. So it's thinking about how those two things can become thought together. The inauguration, again, of the scare-quoted emergency or crisis merely obscures the truth of what our histories can be. And this is part of what Am and Matt have written about in their book on climate change. Um, the condition of permanent or ubiquitous crisis is not the unfortunate outcome of history or human nature, but in some cases a performative declaration of victory on the, port, on the part of those with the right to, to, to name it, those who can name the emergency. Witness, as an example, the deadly farce that's unfolding on the U.S.-Mexico border right now about the declaration of emergency. Now clearly, I think we need to embrace and revisit the critique of sovereignty and violence that Benjamin and others before and after have emphasized. The person who arrogates to himself, and it's usually been a him, the power to determine what is necessary and who must bear its burdens to do it because something must be done, this has justified, of course, endless suffering. And this is the part I'm struggling with in particular. Because it, this moment does nonetheless, for all my desire to find a critical means to escape it, this moment does to me often feel like an emergency. A, a real one. It, it often feels to me, and again, it's more an intuition than anything else, that we are at a moment when something must be done. And I think what I'm trying to do right now, and I'm not doing it very well, is to try and initiate for myself a conversation about how to think straight right now, which I'm finding harder and harder to do. 
And part of, part of that burden, I have to say, is associated with the fact that I'm a parent, which isn't in any way to say that those who aren't parents can't understand this, but is to say that I am aware of something that I'm participating in bequeathing to a generation that I uh, know is not right. Um, because, so at any rate, we need, I, need, I think I need a, a way to think straight right now because things look pretty dire. I don't have or wa want to pretend that I can provide that way, but it seems increasingly sensible, I think, on the part of many people, young people, not, uh, young people included sometimes, to be not merely concerned that climate change, inequality, racist nationalism, and the collapse of <laughs> democracy might be driving significant parts of the world over the precipice. Um, and in fact, I think increasingly some people feel fairly certain of this, or at least that it's the most likely outcome of our current trajectory. And sometimes for me, it's some, it feels like uh, something closer to resignation or disappointment, uh, which I think is not an unusual feeling, though I, can, I shouldn't speak for anyone else. Um, and we sometimes look at ourselves, or at least, again, I shouldn't say we, I feel like I sometimes look at the world in which I live uh, from afar in this sort of tragic sense, this spectatorial sense, and I, I see my, see our, our world via, you know, uh, ocean acidification graphs or uh, satellite images or news feeds, and I feel like I recognize what is wrong, but I'm doing nothing about it, or the look-busy equivalent of, of doing nothing about it at the moment. So I think what's we're thinking about on the uh, related to the to the discussion discussion I'm the only one talking um, the, the progressive plan seems to be I, what I would call at this moment a proceduralization of emergency last month as you all know for example the the Vancouver City Council declared a climate emergency in Vancouver following London and LA who have already done this the goal in the, in our case in Vancouver's case is to rapidly accelerate the city's reductions so as to enable it to meet the 2030 targets that it's set for reduction. Uh, or we might even again turn to, as another example to the Green New Deal in the States which is currently being proposed and it contains an implicit emergency measure dec declaration within it. As does I would say the common comparison of the challenge posed by climate change and that faced by Canada or other nations during World War II which is a common comparison that you may be hearing we need to mobilize like we did during World War II. Now, I hope it goes without saying that I understand and sympathize with these efforts. It is an emergency. But following Am and Matt and others, many others, I also feel like I know the history of emergencies well enough to know that I'm not being unreasonable if I fear that this will only lock in the violence and the unrefusable distribution of life's necessity. Vancouver, of course, to its credit, has been explicit in its insistence on ensuring the, sit the protection of the city's most vulnerable. Uh, these are quoted, most vulnerable. But it is also the case that the city's most vulnerable would be highly unlikely to identify climate change as the thing they feel most vulnerable to. Moreover, even beyond the very Weberian compromises that are already diluting these efforts, I worry that emergencies are all well and good when my people declare them. But I suspect that if the normalization of emergency declarations becomes the principal method through which liberal and less than liberal rule is exercised, it will be a terrible thing in the hands of most other motherfuckers. And these people are very close to power or in power in some places. So if emergency is how we rule, this is a bad pattern, as again, Am and Matt have emphasized. Now, I'm going cl to close with a very uh, unrewarding conclusion, because that's where I'm at. Because I don't have a way to think past these ideas right now. 
That's why I'm talking to you about them in the hopefully not too self-absorbed expectation that you will help me find a way to deal with this. Um, in Balibar's book, Violence and Civility, uh, he gives a fascinating account actually of Luxembourg's insistence that the revolution must contain what he calls a representative moment or it risks what she called the brutalization of public life. And this was a direct critique that's really worth paying a lot of attention to right now, I think, of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, who refused this exactly. She said that even in the midst of revolution, we have to be able to critique ourselves to avoid the way in which, obviously, the Bolshevik revolution did become the brutalization of public life. Um, we need a way inside progressive politics and of course, that's not just one thing. It's many, many things, many, many things, and many, many people doing very valuable things. But all of those movements need a way to critically reflect upon themselves, even in the midst of drastic and often terrifying change. Now, I trust Luxembourg's judgment on almost everything I've ever read. Um, and this is partly why I'm convinced that I want to pay more attention to this. Um, but I also think it's essential that we have this conversation out in the open. Uh, and not send ourselves or allow others around us to get themselves into a wall-building panic. Or as a friend of mine in, on the island said to me the other day, he anticipates seeing gunboats in Victoria Harbor in the next 10 years because of climate refugees. We have to talk about that stuff. We have to pretend it's not, not going to happen. Um, keep the critical conversation going in the midst of a history that I don't think we should fool ourselves into thinking we can control, but we surely can understand that we share. Um, and that's, uh, that's where I'm at right now. Thank you all for coming. Did I talk too long? No, no, not at all. Promise? Promise. <laughs> I'm going to just start off with an initial comment in terms of like how the the talk was characterized because what it immediately made me think about were was um, other places I've lived. So I lived in Israel for a year and definitely saw this is the Oakville for the kind of democratic facade in the context where you could vote. There's a rule of law in place. There's relatively free press. But at the same time, there's a neo-authoritarian context that it's functioning under. Or uh, in, in Hungary uh, today, where I, I've lived uh, before, but could see you know, what was kind of going on in 05, 06. But there's an open use of the term illiberalism that is uh, part and parcel of the, the processes that are underway in, in India and Brazil. It lands down differently. They come down with different histories, but there is a general kind of uh, trending towards what would be the norms and separation of powers that exists that have been drawn upon them, be it an exception, be it a normalization. Uh, but in, in, in many places, Turkey, uh, another one that has its own history and, and context. So there is something to this suspension and its normalization that we haven't sort of come to grips with um, culturally, so it really resonates with, with me. And the climate emergency is one piece, but I think that there's, uh, e even without that, that there was this general trending mm -hmm. going on in mm -hmm. a way. Mm -hmm. <coughs> thank you. Thanks for coming. Of course, this is most fascinating questioning. And thank you for being incredibly like, honest and modest about this oh, wow. fascinating stuff, I would say. Okay. And well, stuff, sorry about stuff. 
I'm just like, I no, it's good. It's good. Um, one thing that is partially not working for me is the constellation of the concepts that you are bringing together and not using them as a constellation, but as almost interchangeably. Because a crisis might mean an acceleration of the normal situation, and emergency might be finding something completely out of the ordinary, as you're suggesting. And then there is this whole like the, the notion of violence, <coughs> whether it is ingrained, it is definitely ingrained in liberal politics, so there's, no, um, like, there's no question about that. But when it is used, is a completely different matter than when things are supposed to go normal. Uh, so if we are living in a permanent emergency, what is the singularity of this situation and what is the novelty of this situation, for me, is not clear uh, in, in, in this question. Because it is like, if, and this is part of the, I think, a, a gift and a curse of the historical analysis. Because if we are making a historical analysis of capitalism and if we're taking it all the way to colonialism too, then, then singularity might not emerge. But if this is a permanent emergency, and I think you are pointing out to that singularity of, the, of this moment, then there has to be something that is distinguishing it with, from all the other crises, all the other tragedies that history has unfortunately given us. And in relation to that, the transformative politics that is necessary today, the question I was, when you were talking about uh, redemptive futures, is that whether or not we are aiming for a new normal, and uh, whether that new normal is going to be the, whatever that new normal is, uh, something that we plan and something that we, what you are saying is the naivety of the utopianism, is that what we're striving towards? Or can there be no way in between a Hobbesian anarchist politics that is completely giving us for an apocalyptic future? Or are we going to say that, okay, this is a redemptive and restitutive future, and that we will pretend, we, not pretend, but are we going to say that none of this should have happened, and that we are now at this normal stage, and the emergency is just lifted off, and then we can go and have a completely hopeful future where it is just, it is fair, and it is not like it's equitable for all. So these are some of the questions that you have here. Wonderful, thank you for your mm -hmm. question. Well, thank you. Yeah. So can I ask for, like, just, I'm gonna ask you a question, <laughs> <laughs> which is, are you, are you, uh, are you saying that the way I framed it, there is a sort of, redemptive possibility that looks a lot like the tradition of sort of positive utopianisms broadly construed or this kind of descent into a, a state of nature and are you talking about a political space that is other than those two is there a possibility for those other than two to emerge right. is my is my question right okay. because the um, <clears throat> so the, these conceptual pairing uh, that you are bringing in the normal abnormal ordinary uh, ordinary and emergency exception. All of those do actually give us these two main lines, and then there can be all possible futures within those lines. But the question is, if this is a new moment, then there has to be, at least that's what I feel, there has to be a third, at least broad conceptualization where we can, we can open up, where we can talk about possibilities in there and not uh, divert ourselves towards these two paths. Okay, thank you very much. This is making a lot of sense. As you can imagine, I don't really have an answer. 
<laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but, uh, I, I mean, so in uh, the the book that 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 uh, Anne mentioned earlier that I, that I co-wrote with my friend Joel, um, the Climate Leviathan book. There's a there's a significant chunk at the end of the book where we talk about what we call climate X, where we are struggling, sometimes pretty explicitly, with. Uh, I think something very close to the questions you're describing, which is to say that, that the, the necessary revolutions, I, I would say, that, that, that the trajectory of climate and other kinds of politics would suggest are necessary are, are so plural that, they, that we, are, we in the book are very reluctant to describe any kind of coded you know, steps towards those things. And we imagine that the, all of those efforts will, will <coughs> be first and foremost specific to their places and times. So in other words, no, there's a not, it's not a universal, the X isn't meant to say that the key is, you know, organize people into teams of 10, head out, you know. <coughs> um, but, the, uh, but one of the interesting things about writing that, I bring it up not because it, it's, that, that's what I wanted to talk about, one of the interesting things about writing that, that chapter was that Joel is a communist. Like, not a narrow-minded one, but a pretty dedicated communist. And, and, and so an intellectual tradition, it comes from an intellectual and political tradition that has very specific kind of markers and, and handholds, if you want to call it that. And I feel less of a home in an ism. And, and, and we struggled how to write that chapter together. Um, not because I had some sort of fantastic ideas that were not contained by the political theory that existed out there, but more because we struggled with our imaginations in, I think, of a way that you're, you're pointing at. You know, I don't, and I don't think either of us are happy where it all ended up, though I also feel like both of us would say it's our failure to imagine what climate X, Xs look like is not necessarily our own individual failure as thinkers. It's it's a you know a product of the moment <coughs> which we're struggling, just like you're describing. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a it's a age old thing that I'm clearly not very good at, <laughs> but struggling for sure. Yeah. More questions, comments? Yeah. Thanks. That was a very helpful talk, illuminating a lot of these ideas in a, in a very clear way. I just wanted to ask about the uh, sort of the temporal dimension of crisis, because to me it seems like a lot of the time when we talk about crisis, we're talking about it as something that's that's all at once, that has this sort of spatial distribution, but we can't think about what's before and what's after the crisis. And that seems to be the case when we're looking at the Greek tragic dimension or uh, the trade-off sort of theory idea uh, where you have like this relationship between stability and crisis and the crisis is undergirding stability or vice versa, but they're, they're simultaneous. It's a synchronic uh, dimension. But what I find powerful about a lot of the sort of Keynesian ideas is that they're all about, about the, the temporal, uh, the dimension of time and of uncertainty and of intertemporal coordination between past and future agents. And um, and I guess I, I, like what came to mind a uh, number of times throughout this talk was I was thinking of um, the the, the post-Keynesian economist uh, Hyman Minsky, mm -hmm. who uh, who talked about how 
uh, stability is destabilizing, mm -hmm. that uh, if you have uh, an economy, even if it's tending towards some sort of equilibrium moment, that will promote risk-taking among economic agents. Um, and so you have to understand stability as it, within this oral relationship with crisis. And so I'm just wondering if, if you could address some of those questions in relationship to uh, how can we understand uh, crisis as something with duration. Mm -hmm. that, I, those are all really interesting things, again, uh, to raise. Um, uh, let me see where I might begin. Um, I mean, so uh, from, a, from a political economy perspective, especially, I know you're not con containing it to that, but, but it, if one were, then the, the notion of crisis has somewhat specific kind of uh, references, you know, in, in, that, in that way. And there is, I think, often implicit in that message, like you say, a kind of pairing with stability. And insofar as that's the case, political economic crisis is usually posited as something that, is, that has a duration, a beginning and an end, and that, it, it's, it, that its permanence is in fact kind of inconceivable to political economy in general, I would say. That would, and I don't think that contradicts, say, some of the stuff you're pointing to with Minsky, you know, where, where his, as a Keynesian, as you said, you know, his conception of stability as destabilizing is partly because of its effect on the state of confidence. And so people take dumber and dumber risks as time goes on, and then they fall off the branch that they've walked out on. Um, at the same time, though, I do think, if this is also what you're looking at, and I, I assume it is, um, in, the, in the larger frame of Keynesianism that is, as I mentioned earlier, I think kind of the, the, the smartest arm of critical liberalism, there is a kind of uh, playing off of the long and the short run on each other, insofar as crisis management becomes the, the task of the short run. It becomes the, the, the wariness, the, the, the state needs to be wary in that sense, or communities, business people, whoever are the actors, need to be wary. And the longer run dynamics themselves become, in some ways, a, a only retrospectively, retrospectively justifiable accumulation of short runs, if that makes any sense. Um, and insofar as that frames how we are presently sort of dealing with climate change, I think it's actually a really accurate description of our approach. Um, one that I think is, is proving itself inadequate more and more by the day, but nonetheless is linked very closely, I think, with these ideas. Um, so if that at all touches on what you're referring to, I think it's like... That certainly, as as I understood what you said, it's I think it's a really important intervention at this moment, especially since I think we tend we tend to turn to political economy as a kind of tool. You know, it's it's what it's, it's as I argue in the Keynes book actually, like it's what it's the it's how the state thinks. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Right. right. Um, yeah, but I think you're, I think you're on to really crucial stuff. Okay, so I'll definitely have to read your, your Keynes book. Well, I, I feel bad. The end of a, like, if, if that's the only thing that I got across, I'm really worried about, like, you should read my books. All of you should read my books. <laughs> okay, thank you for your uh, talk. I had a questioning comment with regards to neocolonialism as the permanent emergency. So you had mentioned... Um, you had mentioned James. I wanted to also bring your attention to uh, The Ninth Floor, the documentary by National Film Board, uh, Selwyn Jacobs, that deals with the 
riots that were at Concordia. Concordia, the old Concordia yeah. in Montreal. Yeah, I've never seen the, it. The, I haven't seen it either, but I know there's also the David Austin book, Fear of a Black Nation, about that very yeah. same incident. So I know that I think Walter Rodney was supposed to be there. He may have been denied entrance. But I'm kind of wondering of that um, the sentiment. Is, was it one of neocolonialism um, now? Is that what you were alluding to when you had said that uh, James had rewritten the foreword to Black Statism? And so I kind of wanted to put that into context. Was it looking at this, um, you know, the, the arc of, like this kind of remix, the arc of injustice kind of angle? <laughs> yeah. And um, uh, it got me thinking of kind of like the, the, the Frederick Douglass who helped struggle with his, his more progress mm-hmm. type of mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of this stuff I just I don't know near as well as I should. But but the 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 James stuff is actually, uh, which is something I know a tiny bit about, um, or have read a bit of, uh, is actually getting at. Um, I think I think in some ways people people associate it with some of the early. Uh, Thinking around what now gets called Afro pessimism, um, but James is in the Black Jacobins. You know, there's this story of a kind of uh, the fall of a, of a of a great hero in Toussaint Louverture, but also at the same time a kind of redemptive possibility of what it initiated in the, in the, this, the the slave revolution that overcame colonialism and spoke to the world that Europe was a product of its peripheries, not the other way. And and uh, and and Scott's take, and which I found very compelling, is that he, he so that book was published in 1938, as you probably know, and then in 1963 he added a, an afterword, and the afterword kind of changes the, what 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 Scott calls the implotment of the book, and it actually reads the failures or what I maybe I'm using too strong a word, what James seems to be assessing as the failures of the new anti-colonial independence movements as being subject partly to neo-colonial pressures, but also having failed in his judgment uh, in their own uh, capacity to see beyond the history that Europe has handed them. And so it's, it's, that's from Scott's assessment. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Though, I mean, the reading is, actually, no, it's from Scott's assessment, but I at least found it really compelling. But it's, it's definitely worth checking out. But So you can see how it becomes a change from a kind of redemptive narrative uh, to a tragic narrative. Um, and whether or not James, say, ended his life in this tragic dimension, I think is, is something that Scott is never very clear on. Um, and I certainly don't always work well enough to know. Um, but, uh, but it begins a conversation about uh, about colonialism and its relationship to neocolonialism. Yeah, because even in that era, uh, 55, for example, you have George Padmore in Ghana with Nkrumah, and the two of them kind of say, like, let's put this black star on the flag. Yeah. Um, but at that same time, Nkrumah is very aware of neocolonialism as kind of the, the, the next kind of slightly deferred agent to, uh, to always be there to declare it. Yeah, absolutely. And then at that same time, you have ba- you have the Bandung Conference, where everyone comes together, you know, to try and you know, 
carve the space out between the polarities that they're supposedly handed, you know, uh, of the Cold War world. So maybe that's part of a way to start thinking about this in a way that I haven't done before. I haven't read the new, the, the new book by Vijay Prashad, but he usually is really smart on this stuff too. Um, have time for a couple more questions or comments. The, the class has been reading Judith Butler and George Orgovin, so hopefully you can have some run-ins with what you've been talking uh, about. Yeah. I brought my state of exception theory. You try to pull that out yeah. on me. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Come on. I have a question. Yes. question. Uh, neither the state of emergency nor a state of uh, utopian mm -hmm. futurism is going to solve this obvious crisis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't have a good answer, as you can imagine. Um, there are probably people in the room who have a better one than me. I do think that for good or ill, and I think it's mostly, I can't tell if it, I was about to say it's mostly ill, but I'm not sure it is. I think for good or ill, my own, and I think many of my, the, the people that I'm closest to and would talk about this stuff with on a, a daily basis, um, our, our uh, coping mechanisms that, that prevent us from losing hope while at the same time trying to be realistic about the challenges ahead, um, uh, actually turn a lot to sort of managing how far in the future we look. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, I don't, I, I, I I hope it's not, not like too self-absorbed to say I think that's actually quite common. Um, is it's not so much to deny the future as it is to be realistic about the extent to which uh, that the what I, I feel like the 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 extent to which the the medium-term future, let's say, uh, can shape our uh, approach to our lives in the moment is a, is a struggle that I think is a, is a particularly distinctive one of our moment in the sense that that uh, it feels m more and more like there's a reason to abandon hope even though there's so much room between now and then and so much good to be done um, and so sometimes it feels like blinkers and then sometimes it's things like if you didn't have blinkers on you'd be fucking crazy so put on some blinkers. Maybe pull them off sometimes, but do you know what I mean? Not to pretend that nothing's happening, but to focus on what you can do now. But uh, I don't, that's not really much of an answer. Yeah, we'll take that one last one there. Uh, this is kind of a follow-up question to that, but uh, you talked about mobilizing the way we did in World War II. Mm -hmm. And it occurs to me that, of course, in World War II, there was a very concrete and direct way of dealing with that crisis, whereas, now, as you said, it's important to focus on what is right in front of you that you can do. So what does mobilization on this crisis actually look like? Yeah. I, again, I, I, I wish I had a, like a, even a short laundry list of, of this right now. I do think that the comparison to World War II, which you know is like, actually just last week, the Financial Times published uh, an article under the title Climate Change on 
how the U.S. like how the U.S. funded and organized around World War II. Like the parallels are becoming very mainstream. Um, I'm not so sure. I worry about the the wartime mobilization metaphor. Um, not just because war is bad, but I also feel like you don't get to pick your enemies that cleanly. Um, and I'm fairly certain if there's a war prosecuted, there will be enemies. And I, People tell me it'll be the rich and all the bad guys, but I'm not so sure that's the case. Um, uh, so, so the kinds of mass mobilization that that the that the Green New Deal or or the World War II metaphor suggests seem to me to be like I would never want to say we shouldn't pursue some of the aspects of that. I mean, if 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 AOC can pull off a Green New Deal in the U.S. I mean, even if it's not enough to deal with the problem, it's a hell of a lot better than what we've got, so let's go for it. But I actually think that on the grander scale, the, the mobilizations will have to be much more specific. I don't imagine a coordinated state-led response to this. I think the state is too compromised by its very nature um, in a liberal capitalist society. The, 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 I think Weber's right about that. Like, the state does, in contemporary liberal capitalism, the state is founded on compromise. And we're in a moment where compromise is unacceptable. We can no longer be compromising. And to the extent that we have to have capital at the table shaking hands, and like that's just not possible anymore. And the state is the vehicle by which that's maintained. So I think that the, rather than a revolution that kills the state, I think the most important activity is going to happen outside of its shell. That's my guess. Thank you. No problem. Okay. On that note, <laughs> <laughs> thank you. To thank you for coming. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And next week, uh, Christine Kim will be. Yes. <laughs>